Welcome and thank you for standing by. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. All participants will be in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, you may press star 1 on your phone to ask a question. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Richard Byrne, the editor of the Wilson Quarterly. Thank you, and you may begin. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for um, calling in to our Ground Truth Briefing on Latin America in 2019, and particularly um, how it was a year of protests across the continent. Um, in the Wilson Quarterly's latest issue, we ran uh, a very comprehensive uh, roundup of country experts um, called Postcards from the Edge. And when I came up with the title, part of what I was wondering was, what edge exactly? Um, so I think that's what we're really going to talk about today. There are some commonalities and there are some major differences within all of these countries. So I would like to turn it over now um, to our moderator, Cindy Arnson, who is the director of our Latin American program here at the Wilson Center. Thanks, Cindy. Thank you, Richard, and thanks to everyone who's joined us. In 2019, um, the depth and the ferocity of the rage that spilled into streets in countries across the Americas took leaders in those countries by surprise as well as many longtime observers. Latin America, of course, is no stranger to street protests, and the causes of these, uh, this new wave of protests were diverse. And there are no real easy generalizations, but there are common threads. One is economic stagnation in the region over the last several years. This slowdown, which at times has been an outright recession, has eroded standards of living and threatened the gains of the middle class and the working poor coming from the so-called golden decade of the early 2000s. A second common thread has to do with the growing distrust and dissatisfaction in Latin America with the institutions and practices of representative democracy, with the incapacity of democratic systems to deliver key public goods, things like quality education and healthcare, security and infrastructure. Corruption has inhibited service delivery and contributed to public cynicism. How have governments responded to this outpouring of discontent? Will the dialogue and the reforms that have been underway be su sufficient to calm the streets? What are the broader implications for the future of political democracy? And what does this all mean for young people who make up the bulk of protesters in many countries but may not necessarily know how to channel their participation in the streets into lasting political change? We have four outstanding experts to address these issues in the cases of Chile, Colombia, Bolivia, and Venezuela. Our first speaker is Dr. Rosana Castiglioni, who is an associate professor in the political science school at Chile's Universidad Diego Portales. Our second speaker is Jim Schultz, who has lived in Bolivia for years and is the founder and executive director of the Democracy Center. Our third speaker is Dr. Michael Penfold, a current fellow in the Latin American program who joins us from Caracas. He is also a full professor at IESA, the, um, the Instituto de Estudios Superiores de Administración. And finally, Catalina Lobo Guerrero 
is the Spanish editor of global of the Global Investigative Journalism Network. She joins us from Bogota. So first, we'll ask our speakers to make opening presentations. We'll follow with some questions from me, and if those of you who have joined us on the call wish to get in the queue to ask a question, please press star one so we can get, come back to you at the end. Rosanna, floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Cindy, for the, for the presentation. Um, as you know, Chile experienced a dramatic wave of protests since October 18, 2018. Uh, mobilizations were largely peaceful, but were also tainted by looting, violence against police forces, and destruction of infrastructure. Um, additionally, the National Institute of Human Rights argued that nearly 1,000 Chileans were injured by security forces uh, rubber pellets, it later was shown that uh, they contained other materials such as lead. Uh, so uh, at least 220 protesters ended up with severe eye problems. Uh, by the end of February, 36 protesters lost their lives. Uh, mobilizations extended with ups and downs up to early January and then entered a sort of recess, particularly in February, but this recess did not reflect a decreasing uh, level of social tensions, but the time of the year. In the Southern Hemisphere, now what we are, um, uh, you know, we just ended our summer break. Um, these protests resumed these past few days. Yesterday, for example, we had several metro stations shut down uh, due to demonstrations. Uh, on March 1st, we had mobilizations of bikers, for example, and uh, a series of mobilizations will take place during March. They are already scheduled, the most important of which will take place in March 8th uh, in the context of the International Day of Women. Some key reforms of the so-called social agenda are being discussed right now, and the government has managed to get preliminary support of part of the opposition, but they have not been yet, yet approved. So, for example, now, as we speak, the, the debate in Congress revolves around pension reform, um, universal daycare, healthcare reform, minimum income, so all these issues are there. Uh, regarding the plebiscite, things are far from um, far from solved. First, um, because support for the new constitution has been decreasing, although the most likely scenario by far is that it will pass. Uh, second is that support for a mixed constitutional convention has been increasing. This means that it is uh, quite likely uh, that the convention that will, um, you know, uh, push for this or, or, or be working in this uh, reform may be formed by legislations and members voted for this purpose. We still don't know that, but it's not an unlikely scenario. Uh, if this happens, uh, even if Chileans vote for a new constitution, changes might be uh, mo much more moderate than protesters are expecting. Uh, one aspect that I think is particularly alarming at this point is that polarization levels seem to be increasing. Uh, since protests do not have a leader, there is no political party behind the, the, the protest, there are no 
uh, signs of political parties when, when there are demonstrations. Uh, and there is not a common purpose. I think that things can get very easily out of hand. As a result, I'm still a bit uh, skeptic about what the future will look like for us. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rosanna. Um, next, we'll hear from uh, Jim Schultz. Um, Jim, please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Buenos dias, everybody. Um, if you had asked almost anybody in Bolivia or people who pay attention to Bolivia in the beginning of October if they thought that Evo Morales would no longer be the president by mid-November, I think you would have found almost nobody who believed that. So these events were very surprising to everyone. Uh, as I wrote in a, a long piece that I did called The Rise and Fall of Evo Morales in the New York Review of Books, you know, th this, as everybody who pays attention to Bolivia knows, this was a government that started with such hope and such power and such inspiration. I mean, this Evo's election in Bolivia was the equivalent of Mandela taking power in South Africa or Obama in the United States. It was transformative. And even people who were critical of Evo were caught up in that euphoria. And he had a very successful first two terms, especially. It's important to remember that the Morales government guided Bolivia through the global recession with growth every year. People were generally satisfied. Certainly at the beginning, there was right-wing opposition that and battles. Uh, but then there was a period of stability, and stability is something Bolivia wasn't really very used to. I lived there 19 years, and stability was a rare thing. I think the undoing of Morales uh, really can be traced to a couple of things. The first is, uh, well, really, it was about his desire to be president for at least 20 years, and we don't know how long was really the plan. Uh, as many of you know, um, Bolivia, like many uh, Latin American countries, has had a pretty strict one-term limit on presidencies because of the, the history of corruption in countries like Bolivia and elsewhere. That was lifted to two terms under the new constitution that Evo and, and the MAS political party supported. Uh, his uh, running for a third term was questionable. He had a legal argument that he made that most people sort of acquiesced to, which is that his first term was under a previous constitution. But when Evo announced that he wanted to run for a fourth term, I think that is when a lot of people began to smell uh, a drift toward authoritarianism that made people very nervous, and not just people who were traditional opponents of the government. You had that combined with a real walking away from AVO of a lot of people on the left around environmental issues. The breaking point for that, obviously, was the, the Tipness March, where you had the government repressing indigenous marchers over the, their desire to keep their, a highway out of their rainforest. Um, and as you know, Evo's election, Evo's running for election for a fourth term was based on this really quite bogus uh, Supreme Court decision, his hand-picked Supreme Court, that even though the Constitution said he couldn't run again, and even though a, a, a popular referendum that he had put on the ballot uh, had people voting uh, by a slim margin to not let him run for a fourth term, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, his human right to run for re-election forever is more powerful than the Constitution. And people saw through that as a power grab. There wasn't really enough 
uh, power in the street to stop that. And this is always the dance in Bolivia, is the electoral process and the protest process dance together in different ways. And then you had the election itself. And you had this experience of Bolivians. And imagine this, you, you know, you had this very robust election and you have this rule that if you get less than 10% more than your opponent and less than 40% of the vote, you head to a runoff. And that's exactly what looked like was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, sudden you had this mysterious, you know, 24 hours in which the ballots weren't being publicly reported anymore. And when it comes out the other side, Evo miraculously has just over the amount of votes that he needs. And people weren't having it. And, you know, and I, when I say people weren't having it, people across the spectrum weren't having it. It just smelled bad. And, and people had their own stories of seeing that their dead mother had cast a vote at the local table. Um, and then the TV images of ballots being found that had been hidden in all of these things. And this culminated in the, the OAS report and all these other things until finally at the beginning of November, you had a classic case of the government, uh, the Morales government, trying to repress the protests in the street, these mass protests in every city across the country, every single city, including places where Evo had been quite popular, like Cochabamba and La Paz. And then it all fell apart, particularly when the police in Cochabamba and again, this was not the captains. These were not the leadership. The rank and file basically said, we're not going into the street to repress our families. We're not, I'm not going to go out and tear gas my daughter. And this started in Cochabamba. And then over the course of about 24 hours, there was a, a mutiny of the police departments across the state, I mean, sorry, across the country. And then you had this very peculiar 48 hours in which nobody really knows, except for a handful of people who were directly involved, what happened. But you definitely had this feeling that everybody was stacked against Evo. And then you have this very controversial statement by the head of the military who comes out on a Sunday morning and says, uh, I believe that the only way that the country is going to find peace is if Evo resigns from the presidency. Now, there's been a ferocious debate of does that constitute a coup or not constitute a coup? And my position has always been no one really knows. It's always troublesome in Latin America when the military puts its finger on the scale, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's really important to recognize that it, this was not the military coming out of nowhere and saying this to Evo. The country was shut down with protests across the country, and then Evo left. And then we had this very peculiar period for about 48 hours in which nobody really knew who the president was going to be. One of the most eerie texts that I had, I was exchanging, obviously, messages and calls with people, was from the best constitutional scholar in the country I know. And I asked him, who's the president? And he texted me back on WhatsApp, who knows? Um, so now we have this interim president, uh, Vanez, uh, which is very troublesome. Uh, you know, an interim government has one job, and that's deliver clean elections and go home. And that's obviously not the way she's handling it. Uh, there's been violent repression against people. There has been an undermining of the legal system. And then you have her announcing that she's going to run 
for the presidency in this election coming up on May 3rd. So you once again have the people looking at a government that simultaneously controls the mechanics of the election and very much has a stake in the outcome. What will happen? Uh, again, the rules are that if you don't get 40% of the vote, that you uh, and you don't finish more than 10% uh, over your opponent, then there is a runoff. And that is most likely what we're going to have. It seems quite likely that the uh, Moss slate is going to make the runoff. And then it's a question of who the second will be. It will either be Añez, the acting president, or Carlos Mesa, the former president, who was Morales' lead opponent. Uh, we can get into this in the question and answers whether the country moves back to some form of stability after the election, I think has a lot to do with who the two candidates are in the runoff and how they conduct themselves. If it's Mas versus Añez, I don't think either side's going to accept it. If it's Mesa versus Mas, I think we might actually have an election people will respect, um, but we'll see. So that's a, that's a quick summary, and we can get into more details uh, as people wish. Great. Uh, next, we'll hear from Michael Penfold. Michael, please go ahead. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Um, Venezuela has experienced uh, three different waves of social protest in the last five years since Maduro eh, came to power in 2013. We had a first uh, very large uh, social protest movement um, driven by a student's demand in 2014 then we had um, a, an even bigger um, wave of social protest in mid-2017 following a, the Supreme Court's attempt to, to a, a strip the National Assembly from its um, constitutional prerogatives. And obviously after um, Juan Guaido was uh, sworn in as interim president um, in, in early 2019, we had a third um, a wave of protest. Um, I think there, there are two, two elements I want to highlight. Um, the, first, the first one is that unlike many other ways in Latin America of social protest, each one of these protests has been followed by a further deterioration of human rights, uh, civil and political rights, um, and even democratic breakdown in, in Venezuela. So, so unlike other countries where a social protest has been followed by concessions and openings. Um, the, the different waves in Venezuela has, has been followed by actually a closing of, 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 the, of, the, of the regime in, 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 in the country. Um, the second difference I would say, and I think it's an important one um, that, that helps us understand a little bit of the dynamics and learning of the regime, is that the first two waves in 2014 and 2017 were massive um, social protest uh, waves. Um, that is, it, it were very large groups of people um, protesting for several months. And instead, in 2019, we had a, historically the largest number of social protests in the country, but did not have, in terms of, of scale, the same size. So really, um, the key question in Venezuela is to understand why haven't we observed um, the, the kind of social protest we saw in the past, um, which could have helped Guaido actually to 
uh, uh, promote and dislodge Maduro from power and therefore promote regime change. In fact, if, you, if we look at sort of the theory of, of change that the opposition um, had in mind, um, given the, the size of the constitutional crisis that we were facing after Maduro uh, was attempting to, to formally start his uh, second presidential period without um, being uh, formally elected with the recognition from the international community, was that what Maduro, in order for Maduro to, to bring down Maduro, what, what the regime needed to confront was international isolation, um, international sanctions, and on the other hand, uh, uh, social protest. Um, Venezuela has experienced international isolation. It has experienced international sanctions, but yet it did not experience the kind of social protest that the opposition thought um, that was going to be required to promote that change. So, so the key question in Venezuela is why, um, in fact, these, the size of, of these protests have been diluted, um, why they have not been able to scale up, um, given the size of the economic and social collapse in the country. Um, today, Venezuela, is, um, its GDP has uh, basically is, is, has, has um, contracted by more than two-thirds, um, it has its experience, it still experiences hyperinflation, um, and we're experiencing the largest uh, migration crisis in the Western Hemisphere modern history. Um, so how do we explain this sort of paradox in Venezuela? I think there are several factors that help us understand this. One has to do with uh, the, the repression. Um, this is a regime that, that has a very important authoritarian dimension to it. Um, what is interesting when we compare the different ways is that repression has taken different forms. For example, in 2014, the repression was conducted by sort of a, a para-state para uh, groups called colectivos. Um, in 2017, it was actually the armed forces through the National Guard that exercised the repression. And in 2019, under Guaido, the opposition experienced a, re a very strong repression from a, a intelligence um, a agencies and also from the police forces, FIES, which were in, in particularly a, a, a trying to demobilize the popular sector. Um, the second factor has to do with social coercion. Um, the regime has been very a, 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 um, capable of, of um, demobilizing public sectors by conditioning access to food um, through a, these food boxes called CLAP. Um, and they have also used uh, police forces as a way to contain social demand um, on the collapse of public services, particularly electricity and water and gas and cooking gas. And on the other hand, um, in, in terms of, of the, 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 the deterioration of their salaries and their income, given the high uh, degrees of hyperinflation that the country is, is, is experiencing. Third factor has to do with the Venezuelan diaspora. Um, Venezuela has experienced uh, more than 4.2 million Venezuelans have left the country, um, and, um, and that has had a huge impact in terms of the demographics of the country, in terms of the social dynamics of the country, and also in terms of how people are generating their income. Um, last year we had remittances um, of over $4.5 billion in Venezuela. 
um, which represent close to 6 to 7% of GDP, which is huge. Um, and this has created a whole different dynamic in terms of how uh, the demographics works. You have uh, very old people starting to live in Venezuela with very young kids that they are taking care of, whereas the more productive labor force is moving out um, particularly to, to other countries um, within Latin America. And, and therefore, with less young people in the streets, uh, with more people trying to survive given the size of the economic crisis, and the diaspora, you have this, this phenomena that, you know, scaling up protests is, 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 is increasingly difficult. That doesn't mean that the, that the protests don't occur. In fact, as I said, they have been happening even at a larger number than other years, um, but they're just not as big as, as, as one would, would imagine given the size of the economic and social uh, collapse. Um, the, other, the other key aspect is that the regime has been very good at reducing a, the credibility of, of the opposition managing to a, dislodge Maduro for power and therefore to produce change. Um, the demand for change in Venezuela is extremely high. It's over 82% of the people want political change in Venezuela. Um, but uh, over 35% of the people believe that that's not going to happen. So that's also creating, a, at the level of public opinion, a lot of difficulty in mobilizing a, 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 the population. And finally, I would say that uh, the opposition has also been failing to develop a strategy that is, is more a grassroots oriented, even though they have been facing ex, you know, extreme uh, conditions in terms of the illegalization of different, different political parties, the persecution of, of different political leaders, but yet the opposition is, has failed to, to adapt um, their discourse and their strategy to a changing a, a, a social and economic environment. Um, they're very much focused on, on restoring democracy and restoring legitimacy, but there's still very little social discourse in terms of how exactly they're going to be able um, to connect with uh, people's demand and reconstruct public services um, in Venezuela. Um, I'll, I'll, I will end basically with where we are today. Um, Guaido next week is calling for... Um, a march. Um, he there was the opposition was hoping that this, after his uh, successful tour um, in Europe and the U.S., this was going to be a turning point um, in his domestic strategy. Um, but it turns out that the difficulty to get people to mobilize on March 10 is much larger than what we be believed. Um, and I think all of this is 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 you know it's a good reflection on on some of these you know, on the importance of some of these factors um, that I have just mentioned. And I do believe that without this kind of social pressure on the domestic front, um, it's going to be very difficult to move forward any attempt to, to, to change the political situation um, in Venezuela. So I'll, I'll leave it there, um, Cindy. Michael, thanks. Pretty sobering for sure. Um, Catalina, Colombia. Um, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for this for this opportunity. Um, well, Colombia has been for, for decades the, the most uh, complicated country in the continent in terms of armed conflict. We had, or we still have, 
the longest armed conflict, armed conflict in Latin America. And after the the peace treaty was signed with the FARC guerrillas and the government of Juan Manuel Santos in 2016, there was hope that you know if the peace treaty was started to be implemented, if, if, if it was implemented, um, you know, the country could move towards a different kind of democracy, a more modern democracy where other issues that had uh, for years been ignored or postponed, uh, you could say, uh, health, uh, more social type uh, discussion, a more socially uh, type discussion on, on health care, on pensions, on unemployment, other kinds of things that, that were ignored for years could, could sort of find um, an opportunity to, to, to be discussed and to be reformed and, and to create a more structural reform. And so um, on November 21st, uh, last year, there was a, a, a huge unprecedented protest almost in every single uh, city in the country known as El Paro, and uh, people stood to the streets, and, and it, was, it was amazing because it was um, like, a, like a spring, sort of, uh, what, you, what you call a spring, anyways. Um, and, and people thought that this was going to, you know, to uh, really push forward some urgent reforms. The unions were the ones that called for, for these protests, but... This was beyond the unions. I mean, uh, the student leaders also had a very active participation in, in calling for these protests, but everyone just took to the streets, different kinds of sectors, uh, and, and it was unprecedented, really. And there was really a question, how, is, how long is this going to last? Like, is this really uh, a new definition of, of, uh, of, uh, of Colombia's democracy, or are we still going to be, you know, torn between the old ways and, and new ways of discussion. And the truth is, the protests have lost momentum. You know, after this November 21st, for uh, the next few weeks, people kept coming out onto the streets. And uh, the government of Ivan Duque called for a national conversation. He set up some discussion tables. It's not really a negotiation. It's more of a discussion. And he set it up according to different themes or issues that people had been uh, demanding. But um, Christmas got on the way, and then Carnival got on the way, and the protest lost momentum, and this has, you know, helped the government sort of uh, earn some time. And the attitude now of most Colombians towards protests is that if people are blocking the streets or if they are engaging in terrorism, or not terrorism, sorry, vandalism acts, then they will not support these protests. Um, the most pressing issue right now is also that some of the some of the ideas that were behind mobilizing protests, like you know the pension fund and economic reform and other kinds of of, of, of things, they're they're losing also because security has increasingly been deteriorating, and the amount of human rights leaders and activists who live mostly in rural areas or what you could call the periphery. Uh, continue to be murdered, and um, at an alarming rate, uh, the most recent UN Human Rights Report uh, says it, the Red Cross Report says it, um, other armed groups that are not now the FARC or FARC dissidents, but you 
or you know new new armed groups that have started uh, taking over some of the areas that they control, as well as the ELN guerrilla, which for years also dominated certain areas, have been more active. And this is this is something that you know it keeps deteriorating. So who is in the opposition right now? Uh, the unions also lost all the support of the people. People don't really feel represented by the people who, who were calling for these protests. And other political leaders, for example, Gustavo Petro, who, who was the one competing against President Ivan Duque, he is also perceived as a, as a dangerous kind of populist, toxic leader, and many people don't really feel identified with him, although he would be the one to represent a, a more, um, uh, let's say, uh, stance against uh, continuing the same way and proposing real structural reform. Um, the other leaders that have, have been rising, the other political leaders that have been rising, uh, for example, Claudia Lopez, the mayor of Bogota, uh, she's having her honeymoon period right now. Her approval ratings are close to 70%. Um, but it's still too early to see if she is the one who could represent some of the demands and some of the, the ideas that helped mobilize the protest in November. For now, uh, the, the conversation, the national conversation, is the, the last talks will be over by next week, March 15, and there's supposed to be a, a, a report coming out to see what kind of um, things they have agreed on. But the, the national conversation didn't involve the unions or the people or the student leaders that were calling for protests anyway. So I'm not really sure what, what, what they will achieve and what will happen with the conversations. Um, and I, I mean, the, the hardest thing is uh, Colombia seems to be torn between its past and its, and its future, and it seems that uh, in rural areas still, just we're still living in an armed conflict situation. In the cities, it's a, it's a different reality. It's a parallel reality. And the discussion, the national conversation is very different when you're in the periphery uh, or if you're in Bogota or Cali or Medellin, the main cities. So uh, who knows what, what's going to happen? But for now, it seems that that the protests really are not are not uh, are not happening, and and that they have lost a lot of support and a lot of momentum, and that there are no real clear leaders who are also, um, you know. Uh, making this happen. So, so who knows what will happen, but, but for now, uh, it's just, it just lost, lost all momentum, really. Great. I have a couple of questions. Given the diversity of these cases, it's hard to ask a, a, a question that, that cuts across, but I'm going to start um, with Rosanna. Um, there will be a plebiscite on April 26th for a new constitution. Um, how likely is the the process around the constitutional reform um, and the subsequent drafting of a new constitution likely to be able to grapple with this extremely complex set of demands of people in the street, particularly the issue of inequality, which to a degree, I think, unlike other um, countries in the region, has been front and center um, in the in the protest movements in in Chile, even though Chile, by Latin American standards, is not the most unequal country. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, 
uh, the plebiscite and how that relates to a process of broader reform. I'd also like to invite people who have joined us on the call, if you'd like to ask a question um, of one or several of the speakers, please press star one to be in the queue. Thanks, Rosanna. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for the question. Um, I think that one, I, I, when, when I uh, first, I would like to start with a brief clarification. I do not think that the fact that Chile is not the most unequal country in Latin America is really important or relevant in terms of how people politicize this issue. Uh, you know, Latin American countries have been structurally very unequal since the beginning of time. However, in some countries at this point of history, inequalities became a political issue. So the fact that uh, inequalities are being politicized from below um, is having an impact, not the actual level of inequality, I would say. It's the perception that people have on, on inequalities and even if they are willing or not to accept these levels of inequality. Uh, regarding the, the process today, it's hard to know what, where we stand and what is going to happen, basically because we don't know what the Constitutional Convention drafting the Constitution will look like. Uh, we know that uh, now, as you said, in April 26, we will have a plebiscite that will decide whether we want a new Constitution or not, and what the mechanism is going to be. This means that uh, people can opt to have a constitutional convention formed exclusively by individuals voted for this purpose, or alternatively, a mixed convention uh, constituted by 50% Congress people, 50% uh, individuals elected for this purpose. I think if the second option is uh, chosen, we will probably see much more continuity than if the first one is uh, chosen. But even in the first case, parties, political parties, have been highly involved in the process. And the most likely scenario is that the uh, individuals integrating this convention will have ties to political parties. Uh, the other problem is that the most progressive left-wing forces are highly factionalized. So um, if you have much more um, this level of fractionalization, this will not favor the forces that are pushing for change. So I do not think that, um, I think that one of the main risks of all this process is that we might have a uh, much more status quo than the protesters want. I'm not saying this is good or bad, I'm just saying that we might have much more con uh, continuity than some people are, are pushing for. Thanks. Great. Um, next question is for Jim, and I'll announce the questions for everybody else so you can be uh, thinking of it um, so we don't run out of time and can take questions from uh, the audience. Um, for Jim, what would be a good outcome in, uh, in May um, from the elections, and what is a bad outcome, and uh, what would that look like, and which one do you think is most likely? Um, for Michael, how um, how is it possible in the face of so much 
repression, both selective and, and more indiscriminate, how is it possible for the opposition to continue to mobilize um, the popular uh, popular sectors or people who are, are suffering from the economic crisis? What would a, a, a reasonable strategy from the opposition look like? And then finally for Catalina, um, President Duque's approval ratings um, um, have taken a, a precipitous uh, fall. Um, he was elected with a historic level of, of, of uh, voters, um, uh, was the youngest president um, to be elected. Given his unpopularity and the, what, what you seem to be describing as a diffusion of the protest movement and its dissipation, um, who is the likely beneficiary um, of the combination of unpopularity, but um, not a lot of movement towards um, changing the status quo. So let's take Jim first. Uh, reminder again, please press star one if you want to ask a question. So we'll go in that order. Um, we'll take Jim, then Michael, uh, then Catalina. Thanks. Well, I think a good outcome is democracy and peace. I think a bad outcome is the dissolution of democracy and violent conflict. Uh, the democracy and peace route would be an election in May, and I, I'm certain a runoff in June. I, I can't imagine somebody's going to win it without a runoff. Uh, that people respect the results of, and that the two sides going into the runoff uh, find some way to work respectfully with one another uh, after the election. The bad outcome is uh, you have an election that people don't respect, that uh, everybody goes back into the streets, that the sort of racism that is under the surface starts becoming more blatant. Um, to be honest, I think if the runoff is between Moss and Carlos Mesa, I think there's a chance of peace and democracy. I think if it is a runoff between Añez and Moss, I think we're headed for trouble. Um, that would be my sort of sort of quick view of things. Um, great. Uh, Michael, please go ahead. Um, obviously, that's uh, the real dilemma that the uh, opposition is facing on, you know, given the fact that it's, it's so difficult to mobilize um, social protests at, at a large scale. Um, you know, what, what are the different alternatives um, to, to push um, the regime to provide meaningful concessions that can, can move the country um, towards restoring constitutional rule and... Um, and, and opening a, a democratic process. Um, and I think this is a divisive issue, this idea of what, you know, what should be done. There's you know, one faction within the opposition that believes that uh, the only way out is, is to increase international pressure even further, which, which looks like something that the U.S. is trying to push um, by increasing um, now the use of secondary sanctions against um, different companies that, that have been um, helping the regime to bypass sanctions, and particularly Rosneft from Russia. And, um, but the truth is that so far, eh, despite this international pressure and, and the isolation, 
um, the regime has been adapting to, to, to this uh, new economic reality. And in fact, this has pushed the regime also to open up and liberalize um, certain, you know, in particular the FX regime. Um, it has allowed for, for an incipient and, and rapid process of, of, you know, very informal process of dollarization. Um, and, and this has created enormous uh, a, 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 a differences. But the truth is that in the domestic front, it, despite this international pressure, you know, you, you're not getting that, that uh, the, the kind of, of, of outcome that you would expect from a political uh, perspective, given the size of, of the economic contraction and the social deprivation that Venezuela, Venezuelans are facing. The other option is electoral. Um, it, the, the, the regime is facing internal pressures from certain groups um, a, to open up uh, to new elections, um, but Maduro wants to do this piecemeal, that is, he wants to hold legislative elections and he understands that he needs some international legitimacy to do that, this. Um, the uh, constitutional term for the opposition's uh, National Assembly is coming to an end by the end of this year. And that poses a real sort of dilemma for how to face um, that reality. There are factions within the opposition that believe that you know it's, this is that they that they should participate. Others believe that they cannot participate given the fact that the, the deteriorations of electoral conditions in Venezuela. And others, I would say, a third faction, which is where I think Guaido is standing today. Um, believes that um, what needs to be done is to use this reality to push the regime not only to open for legislative elections, but also for presidential elections, um, to, to legitimize all, all existing um, public powers in Venezuela. Um, so, so there's no clear-cut answer to this, um, uh, to this question, Cindy. I think at the end, uh, the opposition it needs, first of all, to remain united um, if, because the regime is obviously playing a game where they want them to divide, um, and elections in this case is, is a good tool to do that. Um, and on the other hand, I think they need to be realistic um, in terms of what they can achieve and not achieve. Um, and depending too much on the international community, I, I'm not sure it's going to do the, the work, but they need to come up with a domestic strategy that can actually uh, start uh, uh, achieving some results. Thanks, Catalina. Uh, Catalina, did we lose you? Uh, hmm, sounds like we might have disconnected. Uh, let's go to our first uh, questioner, Maria Abufilat. If you're still on the line, please go ahead. Yes, I'm here. Um, yeah, I have a general question. I'm curious how are these protests uh, seen by the population in, in each of the countries? Um, as Catalina said, in Colombia, uh, this protest uh, of last year was unprecedented, uh, but I still think that there's a lot of stigmatization against protests. I don't know if this, this is probably related with the history of Colombia and the armed conflict, so every time there's like a protest is immediately uh, linked with, uh, with rebels, with, uh, you know, terrorists, vandals that are just here to like, uh, destroy like the peace and, you know, 
Um, and and I'm also not sure, like, I, I also want to know how are these protests covered by the media in the other countries, because I feel like in Colombia, the media tends to focus on, oh, if there's, like, uh, some, like, violence or, or attacks against, like, buildings, yes, they have to cover them, but they, they, they usually focus on that instead of, like, covering the main reasons for the protest. Uh, and they also like cover how people are affected in their community, how they can't uh, get to to work or to their houses because there's there's uh, blockages of the streets, and that make makes people uh, against the protest. So even even though the protests in Colombia last year were very unprecedented, there, you you still feel a lot of stigmatization and stigma from the society itself, always saying, oh. Uh, so there's another movement that always uh, criticizes the protesters and say, oh, I don't go to protest, I work, I produce for my country, because if we want to make a country a better place, we just have to keep working. So basically, they just want the status quo. Who would like to take that uh, question about the stigmatization of protesters and also the way the uh, media is covering uh, covering the protests? I, I can say something very quick on that. Um, I think that it is true. I mean, there has been a, at least an attempt to stigmatize protests uh, coming from most conservative sectors. At the beginning, there was a sort of broad support for protests. This was unprecedented. Even in very well-to-do neighborhoods in Santiago, there was a support for protests in October. Uh, some Comuna, some neighborhoods that never, ever had uh, people protesting had. So it was different. But I think that as time goes by and the effects of recession are being felt and the small, for example, uh, shops in uh, the main streets are suffering and these are middle class people working that are suffering, uh, this support is starting to, um, you know, fade away. So um, this is one one of the things. I don't think it has been stable. At the beginning, these protesters had support, and now they are starting to lose it. And the second thing is um, regarding uh, the level of polarization. I think that at the beginning we had a lot of mobilization coming from people wanting change, and now we are starting to see mobilizations that are smaller in size but still are there from more conservative sectors. So this is contributing to polarization levels, and we don't know how it's going to evolve. Cindy, I can, I can also respond to that if you like. Jim, go ahead, please. You know, protests in Bolivia is kind of like breakfast. For most people, there's something every day. Um, and it's not just left or right. I mean, it's just such a long, long history of protest. And, you know, in Tikipaya, where I lived for so many years, if somebody was mad about an issue with a local school, you'd wake up in the morning and the road would be shut and you would have to figure out a way to get around a road blockade to get to work. So there's a very, very high tolerance protest and it comes from all sides now the protests obviously in november in october were very different because normally a protest is it's some giant mass of people against the government this was the people against the people and it was very frightening 
folks there. And, you know, you have to understand it not just at a political level, but at a sort of human level. Like, I was on the phone with friends who are the parents of kids my kids went to school with who were saying, there are cocaleros with dynamite two kilometers from my house. I don't care what the government has to do to stop them from getting into my neighborhood. And that level of fear, a lot of it well-founded. I mean, you know, people were under attack. That turned into a license by the government to just do whatever it wanted. So you had the massacre at uh, outside of Cochabamba at Sacaba. You had, for a while, this decree by the government that basically advance immunity to all police and soldiers for anything they might do. When you have a high level of fear, that invites a high level of repression and authoritarianism. And it's not at that point political as much as it's just deeply personal. And you have that on all sides. And that's the danger. This is a very different kind of protest situation. This isn't you know, an uprising of the people trying to hold the government accountable, but it becomes a protest of one group of people versus another, and that, that's kerosene in a match. Jim, thanks. We're going to take uh, one last caller. We're out of, que- uh, out of time. Uh, Darren Cochran, uh, if you're still on the line, please go ahead. Is Darren there? Um, I am. I am. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank, thank you. And thank you guys for this conversation. It's been really enlightening. Uh, my question uh, kind of pertains to everyone, but it's focused on Venezuela. Um, in regards to, um, you know, the humanitarian crisis that we're seeing uh, unfolding in the country, is that affecting some of the other domestic issues that we're dealing with in these other countries? I'm thinking specifically of Colombia, but if anyone else has um, anything to talk about in this regard, too, I'd be really interested to hear um, kind of everyone's perspective on this. Okay, I think we've lost Catalina to talk about Colombia. So if anyone else wants to address mm-hmm. that question or make one final statement. Yes, I mean, uh, I think the, the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is, is, um, is huge. Um, and I would say also that the that the international response to to that humanitarian um, crisis um, is not of the size that it should, given the the scale of of of, a, of the, the of the migration process um, taking place right now uh, from Venezuela, particularly um, to other Indian countries like uh, Colombia, Ecuador, or Peru. Um, it's it's um it's an issue that uh that in Venezuela has been exacerbated i would say um by the collapse of public services and in particularly electricity you have uh very large cities um in the interior of the country um that uh struggle with uh a, a blackouts that that can happen four or five even six times a day um, and you have the second largest city um, in the country, Maracaibo, in the west part of the, of the country, um, is struggling on a daily basis with that issue. In addition, you have um, a gas shortages um, for cooking, which is, which is also a put a huge strain, um, it's particularly for the uh, urban population living in the shanty towns that are 
are are dependent on 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 access of of this uh, cooking gas, um, and um, and and that has also created enormous um, discontent. Um, I I believe in terms of the international response. The second aspect is that they have not been able, at the scale they should, um, to be able to address um, the issue within Venezuela. Um, we have a tension happening in the border. Um, we have some support, although not enough, for Colombia and other countries. We have some multilateral organizations being able to to create um, some funds um, available. But I think this is the real challenge for the international community, which is, you know, how to do, how to, to get this international support actually get into Venezuela, given the size of, uh, of, of the crisis. Um, and um, despite, you know, even in the, in the face of, of, of this country that is, is being unable to, to, to shift politically and, and that it looks like this, it's this stalemate is, is going to be in place for, for quite a while. Um, uh, that doesn't, uh, so I would leave it there, but I think there's, there's enormous challenging challenges and, and the need to rethink really the strategies of how to deal with, with the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. With that, I think we're out of time. I'd like to thank all four of our speakers, Rosanna, Jim, Michael, Catalina. Uh, thank you for joining us on the call. We will have audio along with some key quotations from this posted later today or first thing tomorrow. Um, thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. Thanks.